0: So chito the song that we sang just uh, moments ago in glorification of Bhagavad Siddhanta Sarasadhi Thakur is, of course, a very famous song that was composed by Om Mishnupal Sivakti Rakakshita Deva Goswami Maharaj It's quite well known throughout Amongst all of the disciples of Bhaktisiddhanta Sastitagar and their disciples and their disciples and so on. And uh, while while chanting it, it came to mind, to my mind, the first time that my Guru Maharaj, his disciples, the first time that Prabhupada's disciples heard the song about Prabhupada. And uh, I was on the occasion of there being accompanied by Prabhupada Bhaktivedanta Swami to the moth of Jilapakti Rakshakshidhar Goswami Maharaj on the occasion of his Vyasa Puja. Prabhupada took his disciples there to sh- show them how the, such a thing is observed. And at that time, Akinchan Krishna Das Babaji Maharaj was, was present. And he was singing this song. And after he sang the song, then he chanted Jai Prabhu Jai Prabhu Jai Prabhu Pada, Jai Prabhu Pada. Mm-hmm. So My Guru Maharaj's disciples were, were charmed by that and, and by the idea that because they had been calling him Prabhu by the idea that they could that could be sung. And of course they identified it the idea with their own Aguru so it, it came from that moth, which you will hear in, in so many kirtans in qualification of my Guru Maharaj, Jai Prabhupada. And um, from that that song, sung with such feeling by Kinshita Krishna, Babaji Maharaj, who had such deep appreciation for all of the original Sanskrit compositions of Srila Sridhar Maharaj. Remember another occasion the Prophet came uh, to uh, to Boston, or no, excuse me, Buffalo, upstate New York. And while he was, well, uh, his bags were being unpacked, Dhruvika Ram my Godmother, pulled out a picture of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And Prabhupada said, because he kind of looked at it, Dhruvika and kind of wondered, well, what would he do with, where would he put this? And Prabhupada said, oh, just put Prabhupada over there. And uh, it, it was like they hadn't heard Prabhupada speak like that, or I guess Trivikra marsh hadn't just put Prabhupada over there. It was kind of charming and edifying at the same time. So he is the Prabhupada of Prabhupada. <laughs> Praktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur. And uh, his, his disciples affectionately addressed him by that uh, title, Srila Prabhupada, probably more than, than any other title. My Prabhupada once gave a translation of the term Prabhupada, that uh, he whose feet many Prabhus take shelter, many masters and it was certainly the idea of the disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta was that many persons out and about in the Gaudiya community who were uh, masters to one extent or another that they should come and take shelter at his feet they felt very strongly about that and they made a campaign along those those lines that the, his understanding of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that that should be taken shelter of even by those who, who were thought to be deep uh, thinkers and, and realizers in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And in favor of that idea, it is certainly worth pointing out that it was his insight that enabled Gaudiya Vaishnavism to go beyond India, fulfilling the vision of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. In that regard and the giving shape to his vision in such a way that ultimately Mahaprabhu's prediction that his name would be heard in every town and village would be would be fulfilled. So that requires some some shakti. Krishna Shakti meaning Ahita pravartana it's mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita. that without Krishna Shakti then one cannot effectively propagate Namsan kirtan. And Krishna Shakti means Sudha Shatva Visheshatna Prema Suryang samya Samyabhak. In the least it means this. That array of the sun of, of Prema, that Sudha Sattva, is awakened in the heart and it gives it a kind of a power for, for preaching that would be effective. So he had that kind of power, and, and um, that is evidence of deep standing internally in Gaudi Vaishnavism. It's interesting to note that as much as Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur stressed the idea of preaching a kind of a dynamic form of kirtan, of glorification of Krishna, as a means to purifying the heart and awakening, Krishna conscious realization. As much as he did that, he himself engaged as he was so extensively in the same kind of kirtan that he was recommending others take up, a dynamic form of kirtan of propagation, glorification of Krishna. He himself was not doing that for the sake of purification. But he got up from many, many years spent in deep, solitary bhajan to sit and chant Hare Krishna. Sixteen rounds is about 25,000 names. He would chant 300,000 names in a 24-hour period. For a long time, Maybe I think eight or nine years. And from that he got up to do that kirtan. And from that he, he made it one of the most powerful statements, it's a poem actually, Vaishnav K. It's one of the most powerful things that he he wrote. It's a real statement about his insight. Vaishnav K means who's a Vaishnav? Maybe you know the famous line there. What is it? I mean, Oh, my dear mind, what kind of Vaishnav are you? Just sitting in a solitary place, chanting for the purpose of attracting others to you so that they will think that you're a, a big sadhu for pratishta, for recognition, when your, your mind is going other places. And this is a person who wrote this after sitting for nine years and chanting 300,000 names of Krishna a day, sleeping on the bare floor, if at all. This is how he he was speaking to his own own mind. So he had a fair license to make the kind of broad critique that he made of the community at that time, the Gaudiya Vaishnava community. As you know, he was rather... A reformer and a critic, and a critic of his own, his own tradition, not just of other traditions, criticizing, but introspectively criticizing his own tradition, and seeking to to inject new life into it. So his kirtan arose out of that kind of a foundation, of that kind of internal absorption. So it was very powerful type of kirtan, and as much as he recommended it as a means, he was also demonstrating it to be a type of ends as well. So kirtan is, comes on both sides of the spectrum from the to purify us in the beginning, and it continues into perfection. So his was of the, of the latter nature. And he took that kirtan widely, and he advocated his follower's participate in that as I say as, an, as a means to internal spiritual experience and spiritual life and in doing so he took himself from the position of a paramhamsa, who can just sit like that and chant for years and indefinitely and, and put himself in the position of a yati or a sannyasi a parivrajak for traveling and preaching it's interesting because he's sometimes he might be thought to be proud because he was voicing a critique as he did by by others who would call for turn out Peace Pi Soniceno, but he had a dynamic idea of, of all of this, what was humility and and it was a it was a humble position that he took actually to to put himself in the position of being a, crit, a critic of his own own tradition to take the role of a sannyasi and be involved with all the... In his of course, he had a dynamic idea of sannyasi also interfacing with the world and and things that were ordinarily would, would be considered mundane and employing them in Krishna's service and all. He was taking himself from a higher position to a lower position to shed light on how high that position of of the... Stalwarts, the uh, root Sanatan Goswamis who would sit and do bhajan like that, Thakur, for example, how high that really was. He sometimes characterizes not wanting to speak about the higher topics, but he wanted to speak about how high the topics were, how high the ideal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism was. That's what he wanted to put emphasis on. Because as much as we can get a sense of that, how high that is, that will... Give us good standing in terms of going there. So this was largely his uh, his emphasis, and uh, a great reformer he was. He appeared in the world in about 1874, I believe, in, in February 1874, and um, there are some nice anecdotes, of course, about his early life things which we hear about and they confirmed to us that he was divine. Nice to mention and charming to us, like the fact that his uh, umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and chest like, a, like the Brahmin thread that the Brahmins would wear when he was born. And how after just a short time after his birth, he was born in Orissa in Jagannath Puri, just down the street from the Jagannath temple and how, as an infant, the Jagannath cart came and stopped in front of his house and didn't move for three days, and how the child was brought out by Bhagavati Devi, the, his mother, the wife of Thakuribhakti Vinod, and placed before Jagannath, and the garland came down, fell upon him, and and uh, the chariot moved on. So these kind of stories are there, and and they're charming and they, they say to us yes he's divine we shouldn't put so much stock in these stories they're true and they're charming but you know stories over time they get told and they get exaggerated and uh, and that's just the nature of of these things I don't want to minimize them and I believe them and I'm charmed by them but, uh, but we should put more stock in the substantial contribution that he gave through his preaching, what he did, we are are the miracles, that that such a thing is going on, such discussions are being held in in Santa Rosa, California, about him, and mean about him, mean about the doctrine and the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the significance of Mahaprabhu's appearance and so on and so forth. This is miraculous. This again, as I say, this is indicative of Krishna Shakti, great spiritual power to have such a thing, Take place and, and go on and be self-perpetuating the wave that he he set in motion. But there are wonderful stories like those and uh, his commitment to moral principles is uh, was, was notable. He was a very staunch um, religious person. You know, the story that probably best serves to illustrate his morals in a sense and this, this in relation to Krishna bhakti, is the story of how when he what did he do he 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 tasted a a mango in the house before it had then he found out it hadn't been offered to the deity so he took a vow never to eat mango the rest of his life and he never did so he was very very strict in his uh, religious ideal and and how that would be practiced very um, morally upright and desirable in the religious community. His company, his patronage, his participation in whatever any group was about, was desirable. In the academic community, he was desirable not only for his morality and religious uprightness and so forth, but, but his um, intelligence. He was very, very bright and good good student, insightful, quick learner, and not just a, a learner of uh, an information gatherer, not just a good memory. This is not the heart of the sum of the substance of intelligence, but how to put things together, how to put that information together in a package that, that sheds new light on it or on, on any particular topic. So he was very good at that. He authored some books as a young man, and they were, they were noted and so he was desirable many many people uh, wanted his uh, his his company or wanted him in their in, in their group and he was very dedicated to his his very religious father bhakti bhanu Thakur. bhakti Vinod Thakur probably was the individual who had the greatest impression upon him he received hari Harinam initiation from Bhaktivinoda Thakur, and also he was initiated into the chanting of the Shingha Mantra by Bhaktivinoda Thakur. It was Bhaktivinoda Thakur who directed him to take his diksha mantra, mantra diksha from Gaur Das Papaji Maharaj, the other person who had a very prominent influence. But of these two gurus, it seems that uh, Thakur Bhaktivinoda has stronger influence because Gaur directed him towards the life of Bhajan and Bhaktivinoda Thakur brought him out for preaching the world over. And he taught his followers to consider themselves to be uh, members of the Bhaktivinoda Paribha, the family of Bhaktivinoda, the lineage of Bhaktivinoda, who was considered even in secular society to be uh, the seventh Goswami. An appropriate title given his the way in which he wrote about Goli Vaishnavism and how he kind of thought to, sought to re, re revision, the sampradaya that was originally envisioned envisioned, I should say by the, by the six Goswamis so he considered this to be Bhakti Murataka, to be an eternal associate like the Goswamis of Radha and Krishna appearing in the modern world and that his followers all had a direct connection with the eternal this particular eternal associate of, of Mahaprabhu, Sampadaya flowing from there all the sampradayas are flowing from one of the eternal associates of Napa, the Nityananda Paribhar, the Dveta Paribhar, the Paribhar, like that. So he said, and this is an example of how he would, again, like put things together in an insightful way. When he asked, what is your Paribhar, he told his disciples to say, Oh, Bhaktivinoda Paribhar. So that, of course, takes us to his work in the mission of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, his Childhood was moral, and uh, he was uh, good in school, and and so on. Uh, but he left that for a life of uh, a monastic life. He was a lifelong brahmachari. He left for a monastic life, a life of of uh, of rationalism. He he actually left academic life to some extent, thinking that if he went on and got a good education, that he would be more desirable candidate for marriage and he personally felt that for himself marriage would be an impediment to that which he was destined for. So he avoided that and left school to some extent with that in mind. <laughs> Interesting. And came to work directly under Thakur Bhakti Bhaktivunod, became initiated by Gorkshoda's Babaji Maharaj, who was uninterested, Gorkashore was uninterested in all of the things about Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasdhita Thakur, Bimal, Bimal Prasad, as he was called at the time, that everyone else was interested in, his moral uprightness and his um, learning and, and so forth. And this was notab- noted by Bhakti Siddhanta What I have, all my material qualifications, which are considerable and people are after, this person has no interest in whatsoever. So he could understand that uh, by that reasoning that he has something very valuable himself, and I want that. I'm prepared to be a servant uh, to, uh, of the dust of his feet to get that. And with some apparently with some effort, considerable effort on his part, he finally did a- achieve that shelter of Gorkeshwar Das Babaji Maharaj. And so his life then as a as a Gaudiya Vaishnav. Bhaktivinoda Thakur wanted him to carry on his mission, which the mission of Bhaktivinoda was envisioning Gaudiya Vaishnavism as a modern, interfacing with the modern world, as India itself was just beginning to do. And that was a big, uh, that's a big task, an ongoing task. And that's what Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsit Thakur was about, in terms of his identification with Bhaktivinoda Thakur's desire and so he, after the disappearance of Bhakti Manod and Gorka Das Babaji Maharaj, he formed his mission, Chaitanya-mat, gaudiya math and its, its different branches. He wasn't that much of an organizer himself. He was a Brahmin type, although not really born in a Brahmin family. Bhakti Manodaka wasn't born in a Brahmin family. Maybe a kind of Kayastha that he was very braminical in his temperament and disposition and not a big organizer, but some came to organize what he was about, what he was speaking about. And so the mission formed. And as I said, it was a very uh, innovative type of of mission. And he made many, many reforms. And he did things that were were... Largely unprecedented. Things that that he could find precedent for, but not a compelling precedent that everyone would accept. His institution of the Dairavarana ashram, the sannyas, which is an aspect of that. All these things were quite revolutionary in the the community of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He once came, I think the first time he came to Brindavan, dressed as a sannyasi with this this color, and all the godias wore white. He came dressed as a sannyasi, and he had two students with him who were dressed in black with, like, priest collars, like a priest wears a collar. Really? Yeah. In India. And there's pictures of that in India. And black hats, like Nehru hats. And this was how he came to Vrindavan to... uh, Interface with the with the uh, the Gaudiya Vaishnavs there, and they they found him to be uh, how you say um, he wasn't properly dressed. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't identify him as a Gaudiya Vaishnav due to his the packaging in which he had appeared, and they took umbrage with the packaging, actually, and and much that went went with that whole idea of interfacing with the modern world and repackaging Gaudi Vaishnavism and re- rethinking that and, and so on and so forth. So this is so much what he was about and really to, to appreciate him and to, and to glorify him in a substantial way I believe it's incumbent upon, uh, upon us to relative of course to our own standing in Gaudi Vaishnavism our own standing in faith and in realization to continue that type of not only outreach that interfaces with the modern world, but introspective critique, ongoing critique of our own, our own tradition. He was very much involved in that. And, and I think that this is not only important for Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but it, it's very important for spiritual life for each individual. And it, it really is about the kind of thing that, that prophet was talking about when he would say spiritual life's like a razor's edge. To be vital, to be, to be alive, to be a real a dynamic member, a real spiritual person requires this kind of willingness to critique oneself, to critique one's own tradition, and to live up to the things that one feels in one's heart are actually true. With all sincerity, based on previous precedents, based on the literature, in facing with each and every individual moment of our lives, we have to make decisions and we have to, and if we, if we live up to what we know is true and right, we can be sure that we may suffer from lack of popularity. Uh, truth is not going to be a popular thing in a world that's based on falsity. And in every respect, this world, the world of the senses, the world of the mind, uh, that we live is, is a world of falsity because we're not the mind and we're not the senses. So truth is we're not, not going to be popular. We want to popularize Godi Vaishnavism, but even in the context of that, you may become unpopular with Godi Vaishnavs. <laughs> it's quite possible. And he was. So we should expect that. I've given an example before of, in Ras Panchajaya, the Rasalila, how each and every gopi heard the flute sound of Krishna. They heard their own name there, called, and they went. And they didn't wait to see if anyone else was going along. They went. If they had hesitated to see if anyone else was was going to come, if they had hesitated, if they had thought about it too much, if their heart had been encumbered by the mind, by reasoning, they would have been late for the date. <laughs> with uh, uh, with eternity and the fulfillment of their highest prospect. So we have to follow our heart. We often hear guru, sadhu, shastra. This is the legal kind of threefold criterion that has to be brought to bear before we do anything. Is there any precedent by guru, by sadhu, by shastra? And that that's important. But there's a fourth topic also it said sadhu shastra guru valkya chitete koriyaikya so what the guru says what the sadhu says what the shastra says and how chitete koriyaikya how how a heart responds to that that's really everything because we're not going to join this out of some law somebody just comes from India and says whatever the guru says whatever the book says whatever the sadhu says you have to follow that who says? <laughs> says who? Who is <laughs> But because it impacts the heart in a particular way, you respond. So much as we might say, and we may have said and told it to others and said it to ourselves, oh, follow the heart, that's my heart. You have to follow Guru, Sadhu, Shastra. Your heart may tell you so many... That's, there's some truth to that. But there's also some truth to this idea. You have to follow your heart. In relation to Guru, Shadu, Shastra, you think of all those things, you reflect on it, what does it mean to me, how does it affect my heart, and I have to go accordingly. We have to make our way like that. If we think about it too much, uh, then we'll, we'll, we hesit- he who hesitates, I said, it lost. It was auspicious, as a Bengali saying, what is that? Should be done immediately. So there's some scope for that, some balance between that and Angels? Was it fools? Tread where angels, where angels dare to tread. So you have to make some balance between that. But hopefully our heart is 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 activated, and our hearing and chanting is not just a mechanical exercise. We give our heart in our spiritual practices, and so something should come there: some sense of where to go, how to go, how to proceed, what's right, what's the right thing to do and to embrace that. And it will often, more often than not, be clear that that won't be the popular thing to do. <clears throat> and we should rather opt for what is unpopular and truthful rather than what is, what is popular and, and lacking to some extent in truth. And, and this, was the, this was the kind of person that I understand Bhaktisaranta Sarasati Thakur to be, a spiritual person to be. So we will really pay honor to him, tribute to him, glorify him by being such persons. If there's any one thing that you could say he stood for, besides doctrine, doctrinal differences, for example, that he had with different sects and so forth, these things are really not as important as they're often made out to be. What he was really about, in essence, was that he could not tolerate hypocrisy, talking one thing and, as they say, walking something else. This is really what he was against. Now there are some doctrinal differences here and there, but if you play all those things out and the scrutiny and so forth, there are arguments on each side, and there are maybe in time you may see people said one thing, they meant something else, and these things are smaller and insignificant. We tend to gravitate towards them. And then in name of representing, for example, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, we want to pick a fight with everybody in every other lineage. And in, in these days, even within our own Gaudiya Sarswat uh, lineage coming from Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, this to me is the very antithesis of what Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur embodied. Uh, that may not be popular to say that, I, but it uh, is is my firm conviction. Just to quote things from a 100 years ago that were said about a Babaji or this uh, detail of the doctrine and, uh, and so forth, not that those weren't living in val- valid arguments at the time, to, to apply them now in other circumstances to other people who might have been be affiliated with the same lineage a 100 years later. Uh, and to draw lines like this and puff our chest and say, we're the followers of sarwaqua is, is 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 to me to misrepresent essentially what he was about i don't mean to minimize certain doctrinal differences and and whatnot, and we should be clear on what those are, but essentially he was um, he was a unifier really more than a, a, a someone who s- sought to um, Polarize. Polarizing may be a stage towards unification. But it's not the goal in and of itself. We to see there's a goal in, in polarizing. When you polarize, some light is shed on the point that you want to make. Just like in terrorism, there's a kind of a polarization that create, that, that they seek to create and by making such a profound uh, statement, killing innocent people. You get their attention. And maybe they think that, well, such people involved in terrorism that they have no voice. So now people will, uh, will get their attention and then eventually maybe they'll hear what, it, what we're actually saying. There's a reason that we're so irritated and so that we're prepared to do such things. Something like that. But polarisation in and of itself is, isn't is the goal. There may be, a, it may be a, a step that someone determines at some point should be taken for the sake of of unity and deeper understanding and spiritual community. After all, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, is, is meant to make everyone happy, and uh, it's for uh, the, the harmony, really, that Brindaban is all about. Brindaban is the harmonizing of all things. Brudge means like that. I uh, can't be found in the lexicon, but Jiva Goswami has given a definition like that in uh, in Gopal Champu Braj, that place in which all things properly adjusted, all things possible. It's practical, I mean, to take the extreme example of the Gopis' love, we were mentioning it previously, how they all went, what group were they in? When they came to the Vrindavan forest under the uh, Sarakpur, Niman, they found others had come, not waiting to see if anyone else would come. That's the group they were all, we want to be in, in that kind of group. And it could be officially from this family, officially from that family, whatever may be the case. We want to be in a dynamic living group of real spiritual uh Goodya Vaishnavism. So grudge is it means, Jiva Goswami said, harmonizing all things. So to take that example that, that to leave the parakia is what I mean. To leave one's um Husband for another man to harmonize that concept it has its application in Vrindavan. I mean it has nothing to do with that mundane sense but the concept still nonetheless is, is applied all things harmonized all things possible Dr. Siddhartha starts so to talk to himself said religion means proper adjustment just to tweak it put a particular spin on it and all oh, that that's it <laughs> This is, So, Vrindavan is a particular spin on on existence and it's very happy and very very charming. So the mission of the Vrindavan, which was the mission of Bhakti Siddhanta, the Vrindavan conception, isn't really ultimately a polarizing mission, it's a harmonizing mission. So we have to see the polarization as a step towards, towards harmonizing. And it may be appropriate in certain circumstances, as he deemed at that time, it may not be appropriate in other, in other circumstances. So to really pay tribute to Bakistin Sositaker, I believe that we have to talk about these types of things, even more than personal antidotes about his life, oh and the stories of his differences and from different sects and how he challenged and prevailed and these were all wonderful accomplishments of course. Out of nothing he carved out a, a wonderful mission that as I say went has gone all over the world and Largely is the dominant representation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but it needs to be scrutinized and critiqued and see if it doesn't succumb to the very things that he himself, in substance, was criticizing during his own manifest presence. And of course, then to do this is it's we are, we can only do this relative to our own standing in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the scripture, as we were talking about this earlier. He, of course, Paktisodanta Sarasdhik Thakur, cited various scriptural references to support his innovations, his changes, and so forth. But um, not everybody agreed with those citations and what they meant, or even it it is said that some he made up. He wrote some of his own books and attributed them to uh, to being uh, Upanishads or Samhitas or... In conjunction with scholars, and uh, he got together, and I think the, particularly the book with the 108 sannyas names was one that what he was said to have manufactured. This was presented to Sridhar Maharaj, and he didn't deny the fact. Of course, he replied, Well, in my opinion, whatever he manufactures, that, that's what scripture is, which takes us to a very, a really important point. Scripture has, is, my Prabhupada used to say that, I just say that for lack of a better way of saying that. <laughs> it's all everybody's Prabhupada, and both are my Prabhupada, but you understand the, the, the dilemma. But Prabhupada, he used to say that um, scriptures were like the law books. So if you go to court and you cite the law books, as an attorney, you tend to win the case more than if somebody just says, I think, I feel, and it's... In all my heart, Your Honor, he's innocent. <laughs> if you say, well, according to the law book, you know, according to the, 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 the record, which is what the law book is, it's a record. In 19 such and such, the law stated this. And in, 19, in 18 such and such, the law stated this. And taking these two precedents and applying to the present circumstance... I say that he's he's not guilty for these reasons. That is what goes on in the court of law. So what what that means is that the law books are, as much as that analogy at first sounds very rigid. The law books, it's written in the books. It's there. So if you can cite, if you can establish what you are doing with a, with a, if you can reference it to the law book then you're law-abiding, and you're within the law. But you might even question, do you even want to be within the law? Only relatively speaking, we do. And as much as spiritual life will arise out of an ethical and moral... Ethical and what? Ethical and moral, you know, Nami Yama Niyam, in the yogic context, uh, foundation. It's supra-dharmic. Of course, Bhagavatisthasa would emphasize that you've got to be a moral, moral person. You've got to pass through morality to enter into spirituality. And you can take kind of a shortcut by sadhusanga and get on on board, but still you have to become morally upright, and there has to be an ethical basis on which your spiritual life is uh, is, is is founded. But ultimately, spiritual life is lawless as much as love is is lawless and it's it's not rigid at all. It's very dynamic and and unpredictable and spontaneous. So the same analogy of, of law books to scripture, if we play that analogy out, we find as I mentioned, the law is determined on an ongoing basis, and the and the law is being written continuously. So Prabhupada said the scriptures are like the law books, so just take it like that. And if you really play that analogy out, you find it's not rigid at all. All of a sudden, it's like whoa! Uh, it's very disconcerting. In the beginning, it's rigid, and you get to grab on, and it makes sense. The book says this; scripture says it like that; it all works. So, okay, that's beginning. But scripture is, has there's three levels in, in one sense of scripture. Understanding. First is literal. So there's a literal understanding of Scripture. So we'll come in touch with that. That will make sense to us as much as we're in touch with a person who's living beyond the literal conception, beyond the cognitive, uh, cognitive, psychological level of the Scripture. A person who's on the level of uh, what we call uh, interpretive level. Sahidayam. Vishvanatshakavtita, I believe, uses this term. Sadharm is a rasik term from Rasik It Means sympathetic heart. Who has a sympathetic heart? He's, he means he has a rasika. He can taste. He has sympathy for the subject. His heart is sympathetic with the subject. Then he can, in, in drama, in art, he can feel what's going on there. He can, he can draw out the rasa, the emotion. In, so in spiritual life, who is a Rasika, who is to the extent that one is, one can, is on the interpretive level in terms of understanding scripture. You see what this means? That person may speak about it on a literal level, for our benefit. But the only reason that we're accepting the literal level is because it's such a Saturday, I'm such a, such a sympathetic person, such a rasic person is talking about. We're being affected by his or her spiritual standing. That's causing the thing to make sense to us, logically. You take that out, it doesn't make sense. It won't make sense to you any more than the idea that everything's in the Bible. That You meet that guy at the mall or on the street, and you go, shh, shh, you don't want anything to do with that. Everything in the Bible, it says it right here. I am the way, the truth, the light. No one cometh to the Lord except by me. How seriously do we take that, or any tradition that has a fundamentalist representation? We don't take it seriously, but we tend to identify with a fundamentalist level of interpreted level of understanding of Gaudiya and it doesn't it doesn't always feel fundamentalist to us because because we're involved in it. <laughs> but if other people don't see it like that, and so you get the argument: Well, it says in the Bhagavatam. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can't explain dogs of an old dusty book. No, it's not an old dusty book. It, it, it's uh, a It has no human origin. It's eternal, and it can make so many. There are some good arguments, some reasonable arguments for the principle of revelation, for comprehensive knowing. Yes, for the principle, you can make some arguments like that that will be reasonable. But just to say, it's in my book. It says it like that. Why does that make sense to us? Because a person, you can say, on the interpretive level, who has sympathy for the subject, he's spoken about it, and he, he's interpreted it. He's interpreted it according to his heart. His heart is resonating with that subject, Krishna, the principal subject of the... Of the, of the scripture, revealed scripture, our, our Vedic scripture, our Bhagavatam. His heart is resonating with, the, and so he's interpreting it. He, he, it's, it's having a certain meaning to it. And he's speaking about, from that perspective, often in a literal way, like Prabhupada you did. Know, listen to the scripture, it's in the scripture. Why do we accept those arguments? It's because we're in such touch with such a person. We should understand that point. And then we go and we just give the literal understanding, and we're not that such such kind of a person. It doesn't have the same effect on other people. And we start, if we start thinking about it after a while, it doesn't have the same effect on us either. It doesn't make that much sense. It's uh, gosh, there's superstition in there. There's relativity in there. Things don't match with modern society and any thinking person. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in some obscure corner and thinking. I got the absolute truth, why isn't anybody interested? <laughs> we got something, right, but the scripture is it's, it's interpreted, is it's understood on a, on a literal level, and that has some value to get us on board. And in the connotative, for, uh, connotative in sense means there's a literal meaning and there's another, it has another connotation, has another meaning to it also, like a psychological meaning. For it has a philosophical meaning, that verse or that description of that Leela that can be taken and applied, a lesson whereby I can move really in the direction of entering into that, that Leela, that story, that verse. That's very important. Paraput very much in a way presented a very kind of a literal Understanding of Scripture, and that gets people on board of the whole conception of these books rather than those books and whatever. But it's important that we understand that there are different levels of interpretation or understanding. The, level, the Scripture speaks to us in these different ways. Otherwise, we will get stuck at a certain point. And it's very important to come to this second uh, kind of level of understanding that we can we can draw a tattva, a philosophical principle from the whole chapter or from the verse and apply that in our spiritual practice. But the third level, of course, then, that, that is this interpretive level where, we were talking about this earlier, it's Gaudi cite certain verses to support their doctrine. And if you go and look at the context, to get that interpretation, it doesn't fit with the context. But they're speaking from an interpretive level. And there. there's no question that these are deep spiritual people. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the six Gosamis. They were all on in this interpretive level, so to speak. They, so they took the whole body of scripture and they interacted with it on that level. And a kind of interpretation of feelings, what it means, came out. A feeling about it. That's what we call Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and it has all this scriptural support. Without understanding that feeling, that interpretive level, then if you go and really look at it, you say, oh, is he, is it, they, they quote this verse to support their doctrine. But it's out of context. If you look at it in context, this is what it's really saying. But they looked at it, and it, it, it spoke to their heart in a particular way, and it became a precedent or oh, in scripture, which really then just becomes an, an academic exercise. So to speak, you understand? To support your feeling from the scripture for those who that's important to. So, this is the kind of thing that, mm-hmm. that Bhaktisthan mm-hmm. Saraswati was doing with his, his innovations, his interpretations, his putting together a samhita or, or, or whatever, as he was accused of, if he did. When you understand that a person like him is on that level, then there's no there's no difficulty with that. And there's considerable objective, as I say, evidence to bring to bear that any third party would uh, be moved by evidence to support that he was such a person. And, and we, as I say, are probably one of the best forms of evidence that this of Vaishnavism is alive and well in his place, in his country. I mean, in his work, and the work of his immediate followers and so forth, have made it alive and vital, and it's our work to keep it alive and vital by the very same principle that they did. And the principle is not just being a fancy thinker. Don't get me wrong. In, in liberal-minded, and so, forth, but to be a real, sincere spiritual practitioner, and to really follow your heart. To really follow your heart. And it doesn't take much. If you really, if you pray, you know what to do. You know what you're not doing right and you know what you should do. It's not a hard thing to figure out. A spiritual life is not complicated. It really isn't. we got thousands of shlokas and hundreds of books and so much doctrine and so forth. It's really quite a simple thing to move incrementally to the next step whereby you can really understand, to realize. So it's incumbent upon us, first and foremost, to be real, sincere, spiritual, Practitioners, and take the hypocrisy uh, out of our out of our lives. Here, listen, with that in mind. If here's something that I can put in my in place in my life and change it and prove it for the spiritual, uh, to get in- encouragement even to do what I already know, I should be, You don't have to come here for me to tell you what to do. As I say, you, you can know yourself. <laughs> Get encouragement to, yeah, to do that. Right, listen to that voice. To do that, and then, and then, and, and there is some place also for bringing your in, in, intellect into the equation of understanding Gaudiya This is not something that's meant to be anti-intellectual. It is meant to put intellect in its place. If it takes precedent over the soul then it's a problem. But if the soul can surface through spiritual practice, certainly it's incumbent upon the soul to employ intellect in its service, in the service of Krishna, and thereby make a presentation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that has intellectual integrity. I wrote a book many, many years ago. It was the first thing I wrote. Actually, it was a compilation of articles, for the most part, that I had written for a magazine called Claring Call that we started. This was like... 18 or 19 years ago. And so uh, those articles were put together in a book. And I call the book Ancient Wisdom for Modern Ignorance. And it's articles about oh, Ayurveda and Varnashram and all kinds of different cultural and spiritual aspects of ancient India. And to be quite frank with you, it would be probably more valuable to write a book that said modern wisdom for ancient ignorance in the devotee community. Uh, <laughs> because as much as there is wisdom in ancient society, ancient Indian society, there's also a lot of ignorance, superstition there as well. And as much as there's ignorance in modern society, there's a lot of knowledge also. Mm-hmm. Practical insight, knowledge. And the spiritual, spiritual practice isn't the, isn't the only way to arrive at at knowledge and understanding, it's the only way to arrive at conclusive knowledge and understanding and you know the whole absolute truth. But there are other ways of arriving at knowledge using your your, your senses. Even y- using you know, if you if you if you take your finger and you stick it in the fire, you will get knowledge that fire is hot. You learn through your senses. You can learn, and you can learn through your reasoning power. Also, these things are not thrown out in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Gaudiya Vaishnavism says those things are also means of knowledge. They're not means of comprehensive knowledge. Revelation is the means of comprehensive knowledge. Now, just to go on that point that we talked about earlier a little bit, scripture is a prominent form of revelation. But the principle is, by revelation you can know comprehensively, not by anything from your side but by posturing yourself in such a way that that absolute truth which is alive wants to be acquainted with you, wants you to be acquainted with it. Like attracts like. So if we become truthful, sincere, honest, oh, that, uh, humble, that's truthful, we're small, that's a fact. <laughs> then we, we attract we, we, the sympathy of reality who choose to reveal itself to us will show itself. Dancing, that's Krishna. The heart of reality. Dancing, flute playing. That is the idea of Krishna. That reality at its heart appears like that and and such a a lila is there. Lila means divine play. We should use our intelligence. We should use our senses. Purify our senses, yes. But knowledge gathered from the senses, knowledge gathered from reasoning, knowledge gathered from the reasoning and the senses of other people, There's a fair amount of that out and about that should be taken advantage of. And as much as Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur said things like, we are out out to conquer the West. Can he say something like that? Western civilization must be crushed. Yeah, Western civilization must be crushed. As much as he said that, if you study his life, you see, he was not at all shy, timid to accept... Something from Western society that had value. He used the Western-style toilet. <laughs> <laughs> this is to use a good example? It's there at Radakund, at the house of Bhakti where You can go and pay your obeisances to that that toilet. It, <laughs> it, it, it means a lot. <laughs> If you think about it, it means a lot. I, I was very much ecstatic to see that toilet and pay my obeisances <laughs> to that. Uh, it really illustrates the point that I'm, I'm making, one one of the main points that I'm, I'm making. He was not shy to take anything from Western society or any, any society, modern society, that had value. And for some reason, whatever, he found that that had some value. Uh, in fact, there was a lady who an English lady who wrote a famous letter back home, at, uh, and it's available, I think, in, in, in some some Gaudiamath. I read it once, and uh, she's writing about, of course, India was occupied by the British at that time. She's writing about a Swami that she met, but he was different, and she said, and he even uses it in a you know British style toilet. This was like a big thing. They like. In other words, he was willing to give on that side. Yeah, he got some valuable thing over here, we, t- we take that. And Prabhupada, without Vidanta Swami, my guru was like that too. I mean, he would talk about the, He would give a Vedic this, Vedic that, and, and the Vedic society, you know, women like this. And, but how he treated women, how he engaged them was so different from some of the statements in his books about a Vedic society. He had him up doing everything any man was doing. If there was an educated woman he didn't say oh that's a problem <laughs> women should not be educated beyond the age of 12 you know i mean he, he would take advantage of every ounce of her education and thoughtfulness and engage her accordingly and this is one example hundreds of examples of how he embraced he fully embraced modern society and any well any any anything that he determined was valuable and he would uh, discard um, the superstitions from India, if the superstitions from India, superstitions from Vedic culture, they have a charm to them too. We I mean, you know in brahmachari choice, if you clip your fingernails in the wrong place, things will come at night. And, and we believed it. So, <laughs> this is an example of superstition, but has a charm to it also. You have to reach a point with these kind of things where you're charmed by them, but they aren't the absolute truth to you. They aren't the they aren't the thing that you have to tell everybody that convince everybody in order to make them a of Vaishnavism. And if you can find a nice blend, a nice harmony between that and you're charmed by those kind of things to some extent, then then it's good because in Krishna Leela they believe that that kind of thing, you see. This is an interesting point. In Krishna Leela all those superstitions are there. Women stand in the back too. In Christian But if we try to take all those aspects of the Lila, which are only the structure, so to speak, the framework for what the Lila is really about, it's about bhava, it's about the spiritual ecstasy, if we try to take all those things and then establish them here as what Goli Vaishnavism is... Well, the problem. So many people are being alienated. So we have to make adjustment in such a way that the people can come inside. We can come inside with the full reasoning. It would be okay. We can go with that. It, may, it may make, make some sense and apply ourselves to get that feeling. You mean we can be charmed by all those details and it's not a problem and we and we'll be in the lila of Krishna. <laughs> so this takes. Uh, this is what uh, some of what's involved in being really dynamic spiritual uh, practitioners, representatives of gaudi Vaishnavism, the great lineage of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and within that the great lineage of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, we like to call the Gaudiya Saraswati sampradaya. Oh, I implore you that on a day like this we are brought together to pay tribute to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, that you will think about these things and forgive me for not telling every story that you've already heard uh, a thousand times, every antidote and, and every way in which he spoke bombastic words and turned the sampadai upside down in, 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 in those days. bhakti sanshara Any question? I felt myself in a sense of being like a satellite to my direct experience of the world, um, even my sensory experience, what was strange. And I I've met lots of people like that who grew up, grew up in a situation that I did. Mm-hmm. So to them when you go talk philosophy, you know, to them, or it, it makes perfect sense to you know many other people, it just kind of goes in one ear out the other and doesn't have a chance of even passing through the heart. And even if it does, they wouldn't even know it because they're nowhere near their heart. So how to bring a person first to that place of being in their heart where they. Have a chance of saying, okay, how does this feel in my heart? And then from there they can start making progress and accepting this and accepting more. Is that clear? Yeah, well, I think that if if you know people like that or you perceive people to be like that, then obviously you don't uh, just start quoting the scriptures and telling them philosophy. uh, Mm -hmm. Like um, you just make friends with them and you be be kind, You, you show Jibadaya. Bhaktivinoda Thakur said the essence of dharma is two things, chant Krishna Nam and show kindness to other souls, other jivas. Uh, rather than tell people just to chant Hare Krishna, he, he, he gave them both. And what is it? Krishna nama, jiva uh, doi, sarva dharma sar. So he got both. So we always like to tell people, chant Hare Krishna, or... Uh, at least that was fashionable. Uh, and make sure you told them to chant Hare Krishna. You could just be kind to them, and you could be doing as as, as good or perhaps more uh, service to them. Because say, Chan Hare Krishna means, well, like you said, well, what's Hare Krishna, what's the scripture, what's all... It might not be in a position to, to um, appreciate all those things. So, show kindness to such people. That a, should be a byproduct of spiritual culture. Show brotherly love, sisterly love, to show kindness to other living beings. that may mean different things. It may mean sometimes being with people and just... um, You you get a lot of these preacher types that are just like really guarded and you get a sense like they're just waiting for you to stop talking so that they can give you some more philosophy and they look a little uncomfortable in a normal kind of setting. They've always got something to... To to say and, and they, but they don't always be as much as as what it is they have to say and uh, a being person like like take Brow for example when he lived with a... but what what were they called uh, what was that? Butler Pennsylvania with the that Iverwells. family the Agarwals you know you look picking up the kids and all like that you know and, and uh, yeah. he wasn't he wasn't like. Giving them halal time lectures and telling him you shouldn't cook this, you shouldn't do that, and you know he's just living there, cooking for himself, and and he was they were very charmed by him, but he he could see they weren't anyway. He had he was full, so he could be like that without thinking. I'm in Maya, I'm holding a baby, and you know <laughs> I'll do it for a minute, but you know i got to be careful down. That kind of thing. So uh, hopefully the uh, preachers can be not just people that have a lot of information and live in a kind of a world which is protected, sealed, you know, by information from the outside and that they can actually be integrated people and that's what Krishna consciousness is integrated. And then and then they can talk about the philosophy in, in ways that are down to earth, that make sense, that they're, they're practical and they don't have a need even always to talk about philosophy. You hear some great rasiks and how they respond to questions and so forth, like Pamsidas Babaji would be asked a question about some serious question about spiritual life, how to become Krishna conscious. He, saw, he would say something like, you have to learn how to cry. It's only guys would say, you have to learn how to cry. And so everything is all there. It's, it's, and he didn't say anything, but he said everything, obviously to affect such people, effectively to affect them, effectively requires some Krishna consciousness. And for a person like yourself, or you, know, given how much Krishna consciousness, then my advice is, just in a general sense, just be kind to people. And you know, if you say, what is kindness? Is to give them Krishna consciousness. <laughs> okay, but what is Krishna consciousness? It is about being kind on every level to people. Anything else? You said that we're supposed to reflect on how um, guru, sadhu, and shastra sits with the heart, but how could we make sure that we don't, that we're not just doing some kind of mental work, you know, the mind is, is making some kind of conclusion or, or is some emotional response to what we're understanding rather than um, really a matter of the heart. Well, yeah, that's, that's what, it's the dynamics of spiritual life. And uh, we can seek some counsel also. We can if we have some doubt like that, which is good, then we can voice our doubt, voice our heart to someone we trust, like our guru or sadhu and see what kind of response we get. I mean mostly most of the things, you know, you take the guru said sadhu, sadhu, sadhush, it's pretty good, it works pretty good. But my point really is that it's only as good as it as it captures our heart. But on a regular basis, it's a pretty good principle that you, 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 you before you do something, you want to think, well, what, what would my guru do in this circumstance? What would the say in this circumstance? And how do, you, how do you, how do you feel about it? And then if you feel, well, they said this, they did this, scripture said that, but that doesn't feel very good to me, then give them a call. <laughs> you know? So good association is something we should always keep and it should be within reach. So we, we can feel in our heart, but if we have a doubt, is this my heart, is this my mind? Then it may not be in our heart, because we really feel in the heart we know this is right. And it's usually not some deviation or something, it's usually coming more within the fold, and this is what the heart says. Mind usually says something else. So, anything else? Uh, yeah. Sivaktisiddhamsasthitaku <laughs> prapādhki